And this week we are going to get more into what the Holy Spirit does. What is the Holy Spirit's role in our life, particularly in the life of the Christian. I warned you last week that starting this series was going to be like going on a blind date. Many of us have heard about the Holy Spirit. If you've been a part of church for any length of time, you've heard of the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, many of us feel like a blind date. It's quite obscure. We're not really sure what the Holy Spirit does, what it means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week I mentioned three things about who the Holy Spirit is. We said that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Holy Spirit also is a divine person, and that the Holy Spirit works in perfect unity with the Father and the Son. And from this, we saw that because of the perfect unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see that God is a God of love. He's a God who exists and has always existed for all of eternity as community, and we are created in his image to also reflect that community. So what does this God of love, this triune God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, what does he do in the life of the believer? When you're getting to know a new person, one of the first things you ask them is, what do you do? We can learn a lot about someone by the occupation that they've chosen, or the hobbies that they like to do, the things that interest them. And so it's a very common question to ask a new person, what do you do? That's kind of the question we're going to be asking the Holy Spirit today. What do you do? Well, every believer in Jesus Christ has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned last week, and I'll mention it a few times today, our NAB statement of faith, some of its statements about the Holy Spirit. One of the things it says is that at regeneration and at conversion, that is when you become a believer... When God does a change in your life, when a conversion happens, the believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit. What we see as an outward act that we do with water in the act of baptism is something that happens inwardly in every single person who becomes a follower of Jesus. And yet, all of us know today that though we have the Holy Spirit in us, if we're Christians... We don't necessarily always walk in tune with the Holy Spirit. It's very easy for Christians to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Or what he's encouraging us to do, and what he wants us to do, is to submit to him. But we can resist him. Some scripture even suggests that we can continually resist the Holy Spirit to the point where we may even forfeit or throw away our salvation. So what does it mean to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life in such a way that we are surrendering to him, we are submitting to him, and we are not resisting him and possibly pushing him away from our life? Well, let's look first off at John 16, at a passage of scripture that describes the Holy Spirit's role in our life. John chapter 16, verse 5 to 7, and then I'm going to jump to verses 12 to 15. Jesus is speaking here and says, But now I'm going away 
to the one who sent me, going back to the Father, and not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because what I have told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I do go away because if I don't, the advocate or the counselor won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And then jump to verse 12 because the verses in between are what we're going to look at next week. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, that's the one I'm going to send you. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. The Holy Spirit is a counselor whose job it is to guide us into all truth. The Holy Spirit has been sent to us by God, the Father and the Son, to speak to us and to lead us in the same perfect will that the Father and the Son have for our life. He is our counselor. But sometimes we get the image today of a counselor as someone you go see when you kind of lay down on a couch or on a chair and, and, and counsels you through situations in your life. The Holy Spirit does do that, but a better image is maybe to think of the Holy Spirit like a coach. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to coach us in our life, to mentor us, to be a teacher. He, alongside of the will of the Father and the Son, teaches us in the ways of God. Again, the NAB Statement of Faith says this, The Holy Spirit empowers, He guides, He teaches, He fills, He sanctifies, and he produces the fruit of Christ-likeness in all who yield to him. This yielding to the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing. We don't simply yield to the Holy Spirit one time in our life and then everything else just goes on autopilot. But it is a continual surrendering to the Holy Spirit. A continual offering ourselves and saying that we will walk in line with our coach. We will listen to what our coach has to teach us. I've coached soccer and I know what it's like to coach people uh, that listen and want to learn and want to get better. And I know what it's like to coach people who don't listen. And those people that are unwilling to listen to their coach are not going to be able to grow in whatever the sport is. In the same way, the Holy Spirit wants us to grow in maturity in Christ. He's coaching us, but we must be willing to yield. So the question comes is, what does this look like practically? How do I practically surrender, yield, listen to the Holy Spirit? And this is a very important question. Because many Christians mistake the Holy Spirit's leading with feelings or impressions, or inner voices that they hear. 
You've probably all heard it if you've been in Christian circles for any length of time. It is common to hear Christians saying things like, I felt the Spirit leading. God impressed upon my heart. I just sensed God's confirmation. Or, I'm so glad I have a peace about this being God's plan. As if, as if, if someone says that to you, there's no more room to ask any questions. Lest you be questioning God. But this feelings equal the Holy Spirit guide to faith has led the Holy Spirit to give us some rather bizarre messages. For example, many of you may remember the whole Jim Baker televangelist scandal of the 1980s. Well, one of the things Baker was caught for was cheating on his wife with a young church secretary named Jessica Hahn. After the scandal, Jessica was offered a million dollars to pose for Playboy, which she accepted. Interviewed about her decision to pose for Playboy, this once church secretary said, I believe posing in Playboy has brought me closer to God. Before the photo shoot, I asked God for a sign while out on a walk, and the next thing I knew, there was a rainbow in the sky. That was enough for me. I didn't have a church or a preacher to run to. I just had me and God walking. Now, it seems fairly absurd in this particular situation, but we have heard this kind of story Many times, with many people making decisions about what house to buy or what car to buy or to go here or to go that, and it's the same logic that is used quite often in regards to the fleeces that we put forward, which then begs the question, how do we know? Who am I to question whether or not God gave Jessica Hahn a rainbow in the sky encouraging her to go pose for Playboy so that she could become closer to God through that experience? Are there any ways that we can discern whether or not this really is from God or not? I remember a personal experience from high school, and now that it's getting close to graduation time, I thought I'd put my grad picture up. Thank you. I had good hair back then. Back in high school, I had a girl named Heidi who told me that God had impressed upon her heart through a dream that the two of us were to get married and become youth pastors. Well, I didn't even ask Heidi for five minutes to pray about it. I simply said to her, that's not happening. Uh... Unless God somehow absolutely blatantly makes that obvious to me, that is simply not happening. And obviously God did not because the name of my wife is Nancy, not Heidi. Or what about the pastor who tells his or her church that God told them that we need to do this or to do that? What's the church supposed to do in a situation like that then? Question God? Sometimes the way that we throw around the Holy Spirit spoke to us like this can be very dangerous. In fact, Mac, uh, Mark Galley, editor of Christianity Today, uh, writes just, just a month ago, writes about his growing concern of the number of Christians speaking 
and being guided by things and methods like this. From everything to purchasing a new house to moving in with their girlfriend, uh, he says that it's almost as if you say, I felt the Holy Spirit say, that's the final court of appeal. And then he writes, this is no small matter, but one crucial for the health of evangelical Christianity. Unfortunately, in some circles, God spoke to me or God gave me a piece about it, have become an unaccessible validation of truth. We live in a time when the subjective reigns supreme in our culture. In this cultural climate, it seems rude to ask, how do you know if it was God giving you peace? How do you know if it was God leading you? But this is crucial for evangelicals, especially pastors and teachers, to risk such rudeness in asking the questions. We don't want our faith to be driven by mushy sentimentalism in which one's feelings about the situation rule the day. The Spirit will never contradict the word of our Lord in Scripture. He writes, evangelical Christianity cannot remain a dynamic movement of God only as long as it continues to marry that mysterious subjective leading to the teachings of his objective word in Scripture. It's a long quote, but essentially what Mark uh, is saying there is where I'm going to go with my first point. How does the Holy Spirit counsel us? How does the Holy Spirit coach us? How does the Holy Spirit teach us? The Holy Spirit is our counselor and coach, first and foremost, through Scripture. The Holy Spirit counsels us through Scripture. The final court of appeal for Christians is not, I feel, but the Bible says. Hopefully, rightly interpreted, obviously. Because we can do that with the Bible as well. I feel the Bible is telling me this. Well, then, actually, we're simply using feelings, once again, as our court of appeal. It doesn't matter what you feel the Bible telling you. What does the Bible say is what's important. The Holy Spirit doesn't work independent of Scripture. The Holy Spirit never works over and above Scripture through mystical feelings. And therefore... It is impossible to grow as a Christian. It's virtually impossible to hear from the Holy Spirit if you are not regularly involved in the study of Scripture. And I've heard that from many people that I've talked to as well that have said things to me, Steph, I just feel like I haven't heard God from God in years. And usually I'll simply start asking them the question about their devotional life, and I'll find out that they really haven't been reading their Bible for years. And that's a pretty obvious reason and connection of why they're not hearing from God. If someone spends little time in the Bible, I'm extremely skeptical when they think they have heard from the Lord. If you are not saturated in Scripture you are not going to be able to tell the difference between the voice of God and the voice of culture or the voice of your own inner wishes or anxieties. 
And I think that's important and bears repeating that if you are not saturated in Scripture, and saturated in Scripture doesn't mean what's my verse of the day. It means we are immersed regularly in the reading and the studying and the spending time getting to know what Scripture teaches in its context and in its whole story. If you're not saturated in Scripture that it becomes a part of your life, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between when God is speaking and when culture speaking. And it's when it's your own inner wishes and anxieties. In fact, I have discovered in my own life that when God is speaking to me, rarely do I have peace in my heart. Usually when I have peace in my heart is when I'm self-justifying my own behavior. God quite often upsets my heart and makes me extremely uncomfortable. Scripture is our standard. This goes for all people, regardless of your position in church. Doesn't matter if you're a pope, if you're a preacher, if you're a small group leader, or if you claim to be a prophet. The Holy Spirit will never contradict Scripture. The Reformation, one of the things that it was birthed upon, was Scripture as authority, Scripture alone. Healthy Christians do not accept whenever someone simply says they felt God say. You have every right as a Christian, when someone says, I felt God say this to me, you have every right to say, how do you know? How can you verify that? Paul encourages us to test the spirits. That's not being um, critical. That's simply being biblical, to test the spirits. How do you know that's really from God? How do you know that God has said that to you or not? Whenever we look at Paul's Holy Spirit-filled messages in Scripture, you will notice that they are always described as reasoning, debating, proving, and then it adds on the words from the Scriptures. Paul was not some just airy-fairy um, feelings, chicken soup for the soul kind of messages. It says he argued from the scriptures. He proved from the scriptures. He reasoned from the scriptures. He pointed, he debated from the scriptures. And in scripture, it also says that the Bereans, those more noble Christians they are described, are referred to as noble Christians because everything they heard Paul doing from the scriptures, proving all of that. It says the Bereans went home and they examined the scriptures for themselves. They checked the scriptures. They studied it. They researched it to see if what Paul was saying was true. You see here a community, both preacher and Paul and the Bereans, saturated in scripture. It's why they could hear from God. It wasn't the Bereans ran home and grabbed a proof text and, and then jumped off on it and some kind of weird theolog theological um, harebrained idea they had, but they examined the scriptures, immersed themselves in it. One of the reasons Christianity has often led the way in the world in regards to discovery, in regards to science, in regards to education, is because Christianity behind it has always been rooted in a healthy skepticism. Christianity, I think every Christian should be a healthy skeptic. It goes with Christianity. 
Again, one of the things that the Reformation, in bringing people back to Scripture, so much was doing was challenging society in its superstitions, in its spiritism, in its shamanism, which we have a lot of that today, too, in the church and outside of the church. Superstitions have always been challenged by people who are immersed in Scripture. Because one of the things that Scripture continually teaches us is to engage truth with the mind, which is to ask questions. We cannot claim to hear a message from the Holy Spirit apart from listening and studying the Bible. John Stott, the late John Stott, now one of my uh, favorite Anglican pastor scholars, said this a number of years back, to use the Holy Spirit... To rationalize our laziness is nearer to blasphemy than piety. Trust in the Holy Spirit must not be used as a device to save us the labor, the labor of biblical and contemporary study. I want to keep emphasizing that word too. I know it's scary. I know it's a bit. Of, it's hard work, and growing as a Christian is hard work. It's that word study. Immersing, immersing yourself in scripture is not surface level reading, grabbing sentences and using them to prove points. It's the study of scripture. It's the knowing the overarching story, the narrative and how things weave together and what God's message to his people is. That's what a saturated person in scripture looks like. So to read the Bible this way in the spirit is to read it listening. It's a submitting posture. It's not coming to the scripture to find stuff to argue. It is first off to listen, to hear, to be willing to be convicted, to change, to put into the into practice what the Holy Spirit is saying to me. Not to look for proofs for our predigested opinions. Certainly the scripture is also used when we are now explaining that to other people to prove and to show and to point out and all of that. But it has to first have been listened to ourselves. So that our hearts and minds have been conformed to the truth of Scripture, not that we have bent Scripture to conform with our truths. Thomas Akempis, in his classic, The Imitation of Christ, said, We often find that those who hear the Gospels regularly become bored with them. The reason is that they do not have the Spirit of Christ. If we desire to have a true understanding of the gospel, we must study to conform our life as nearly as we can to his. If you know all the books of the Bible merely by rote and all the sayings of the philosophers by heart, what will it profit you without grace and love? It's coming to scripture. It's coming to the Holy Spirit in a posture of Surrender. To learn and to allow him to change our hearts, to change our natures. Not just to build up Bible knowledge. There's no getting around 
exercise. I said the Holy Spirit, a good image that we can give for him today is coach. And guess what? If you've ever had a coach and a good coach, in fact, if you've ever had a teacher and a good teacher, they will work you hard. And people that really want to improve in their sport will say time and again that such and such a coach was brutal on us, but was probably the best coach I ever had. Because they hold the standards. They hold people to those standards, and they push, and they prod, and they gear, and they'll get down in your face and even yell if they have to. One more push-up, one more, one more, and they just keep pushing you to grow. The Holy Spirit is our coach, and he is going to push us into the Word, to study, to carve out the time in our day to say, this is important. This is something I need to make a priority in my life. And unless I work hard to the pushing of the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to become a flabby Christian. Anyone who is telling you otherwise is lying. Secondly, the Holy Spirit not only counsels us through Scripture, but the Holy Spirit also counsels us through prayer. Have you ever felt like you just don't know how to pray? Don't know what to say, just keep repeating the same things over and over. Don't know how to express yourself to God. Well, one comforting thing that we get from Scripture are these words here. Paul says the Spirit helps us in that weakness of ours. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And the Holy Spirit searches our hearts, knows um, hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints... In accordance with God's will. This is one of the things that I find very comforting. The fact that the Holy Spirit is constantly praying for me. And with me. Even beyond my ability to know what to pray for. But again this is not an excuse for laziness. To just say wow that's great. I can then just put my feet up. The Holy Spirit does all the praying for me. Because true prayer is also hard work. To begin to learn how to pray in tune with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I will admit, I find prayer the hardest work of all the disciplines that I have to do. And in years of trying to learn and be disciplined in this area, I've found that I need to set aside regular times. I need a regular space. I have a prayer journal in which I write things down in because I have too much ADD and I'll just be praying for about 23 seconds and then I'll see a bird fly by and go, oh, that's cool. Uh, I need the focus of being able to write something down. I need something tangible. I also use the works of a lot of classic Christian writers, which I find extremely helpful. But most important, and here what goes back to my first point, once again, prayer must be immersed in Scripture. If there's anything that I have found that has helped my prayer life the most, it is praying the scriptures, particularly the Psalms. You may remember a few years back as a congregation when we went through a, a prayer, a psalm a week that we just took and, and put into our own words as a prayer. Once again, I find that 
It is through scripture guiding me in my praying that I am able to be in the spirit when I pray. Without that, my prayers become fairly redundant. Lord, bless my kids, bless my wife, do this, keep me safe today, yada, 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 yada. I mean, that does get pretty monotonous time after time. And, 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 and without scripture, that is how limitedly creative I am. For all of what we may criticize other practices and denominations for having their written prayers out, just listen to the typical evangelical prayer after two or three weeks. It's pretty rote. It's pretty the same thing. And Lord, bless us, make sure nobody gets hurt. That's a good one. Um, you know, this, that. It, it, it's the same cliche things we say every time, over and over and over again. What does Jesus say about that kind of monotonous prayer? And yet it's the scriptures. It's when we begin to immerse our prayer life in the Psalms that we get a new language from which to pray. And if the Holy Spirit works in line with scripture, then we are praying the very words of God. We're praying in the Holy Spirit when we pray scripture. We pray the words of scripture. We begin to see life from God's perspective. It's interesting how much the monastic communities, the whole prayer life in the monastic communities is all oriented around the Psalms. The communities, after a few years of being in it, almost have the entire Psalter or Psalm book memorized. It's their prayer language. Once again, as evangelicals of all people who say that the Bible is our source, well, then why isn't it the source of our prayers? Source of all of how we are guided in life. The root of everything we do. When we say the Bible is our foundation, are we saying it just as a cliche? As a trite statement? Or do we live our lives and orient our lives from Scripture? That it is so a part of our life. That people can recognize it even by the way we speak, by the way we talk, by the way we live, by the way that we pray. It's scripture that keeps my prayer life rooted. And it protects me from thinking about God and mixing God up with my fantasies. Now, this doesn't mean I understand prayer. There are still many things that I don't understand about prayer. I don't understand some aspects of why we pray when God already knows everything and I don't understand why um, certain things need to be said to God when he already knows all that stuff. I, there's many things that are just in the realm of mystery. It's comforting to know that even within my battles, the Holy Spirit fights for me and prays far deeper than I can understand. There are many things that are a mystery about prayer. In many ways, we need to leave the mysteries. Paul describes himself as even being caught up to the third heaven. Whatever that means. He never elaborated. And then he said he doesn't even know if that happened in the body or out of the body. And then he refuses to talk about it. And he said that all that that whole experience gave him was a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. In many ways what Paul is saying here is when it gets to those deeper things, we, we just leave them in the realm of mystery. It begins to become dangerous when we 
start to think we can understand it, or start to think that through certain magical Christian rites, we can manipulate God through our prayers to make certain things happen. No, we ground our prayers in Scripture so that we're grounded in listening to the Holy Spirit and then recognize that there's a lot of mystery that's going on behind the scenes that we leave to God. Well, the Holy Spirit also not only coaches us through Scripture, but coaches us through prayer, which also is rooted in Scripture. But the Holy Spirit coaches us to produce Christ-like fruit in us. So we may be coached in Scripture and in prayer, but then the question is, is what are we being coached to? What does it mean to be coached in Scripture? Because there's many ways Scripture can be approached. There are some people, some Bible scholars that are brilliant with the scripture, but actually have no relationship with Jesus. There are some people that, that can write brilliant essays on parts of scripture, but it's never impacted their heart. That's not what it means to be Holy Spirit engaged with scripture. That's not what we're talking about. So what is the end goal? What is the Holy Spirit wanting to accomplish in us? As he counsels us, teaches us, coaches us through scripture and prayer. Well, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit's desire is to produce Christ-like fruit in us. There are ways to pray and there are ways to read the Bible that are not Holy Spirit filled. And in fact, what happens is there are ways to pray and there are ways to read the Bible that will actually simply make people more arrogant. Whereas the Holy Spirit, when he guides us to read and to pray, it's always to the goal of maturing love. Derek read earlier in the service from Galatians where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then Paul goes on and says, against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their sinful nature with its passions and desires. And then says, since we live by the Spirit. And here's the part that is about the yielding that needs to take place. It's not an automatic. It says, Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. So the goal there is to live by the Spirit, which means keeping in step with the Spirit. As we keep in step with what the Spirit is doing as we are engaged in prayer and Scripture, it means that as we are engaging Scripture, we are becoming more loving, more joyful, more peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful gentle, and self-controlled. Notice the both end here expressed in the passage. As Christians, our sinful nature, that's past tense. Our sinful nature, past tense, has been crucified with Christ. So that we now live in the Spirit. That's present tense. But then it goes on to say, so let us keep in step. With the spirit. That's future tense. We have both the either or. It, this talks about our past. Our conversion if you want to call it. We've been crucified with Christ. 
But then it also talks about the fact that we need to now keep in step. Remember our baptism. Remember that crucifixion. Live out resurrection. It's both. We've died and we now live and keep in step. We keep in step with the Spirit. The Christian life is a journey from selfishness towards maturing sacrificial love. It's not a one-time event. That's why Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan has always been such a classic, and I think even the title of alone is a great reminder for all of us that it is, as we are pilgrims, a progress. In fact, in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, when Pilgrim, who has that great burden of sin on his back, when he finally comes to the cross and the, the, the snaps uh, or the straps snap and, and it falls off of his back and he's free from all of his sin, that conversion, which for many of us sometimes today, that becomes sort of the end of our testimony. Here is all my life, and then boom, that happened. In Pilgrim's Progress, it's only a few pages in. It's the beginning of his pilgrimage, now that he's been freed from this burden. And then he starts to go on his journey, which involves valleys and mountains and battles and victories. The Christian life is a journey. It's analogous to running a race with the Holy Spirit as our coach. Running well. Growing in becoming increasingly God-centered, other-centered. It's the opposite of always having it be about me and my way and my desire. I think some ways to put this into contemporary uh, Language We hear the love, joy, peace, patience kind of all the time. Some of the ways that we see these Holy Spirit attributes in mature Christians are suggested by Tyndale Seminary professor James Beverly, who in the last issue of Faith Today had a, a, an article on Christians dealing with the culture wars. There are many things in culture and some of the ways that culture is going that are unbiblical and we as Christians don't agree with. So how do we engage in conversations one-on-one -on -one with friends or with people or levels of society, government, organizations? How do we engage? How do we speak truth but with Holy Spirit filledness? James in this little article gives um, four points which I think are great Galatians uh, fruits of the Spirit type of ways of saying these same things. He says, bite your tongue unless you truly know what you're talking about. How many times do we approach people or challenge people with only half the truth? We don't have the full story. And then we come and we bring information and we this and we cause all these things and we don't have the whole story. Know your facts first. So many times we're backpedaling because, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't check that out. I didn't read that. I wasn't sure about that. I wasn't. He says, bite your tongue unless you know what you're talking about. So you don't end up looking like a fool. Number two, give your ideological enemies some benefit of the doubt. You know what? Not everything that 
the other party or other person is saying is wrong? What things can you affirm? What things can you agree with? I've mentioned many times before some of my connections with the Unificationist Church, or sometimes more popularly known as the Moonies. In fact, today at 5 o'clock, I've been invited to another one of their events to speak. They've asked me to give my testimony there, um, and so I'm going to be with them today at 5. And at, at one level, there are many things with the Unificationists in regards to some of their desire for peace and some of their desires for dialogue between religions that I totally affirm. And so at what level can I give them some of the benefit of the doubt and realize that not everything they believe is anti what I believe. Some we can come together on. Now there are going to be some differences and we'll eventually get there. But give your enemies some benefit of the doubt. They're actually not evil people. And many of them really just want what's best for the world. And number three, he says, is match the alarm raised with reality. How many times do we get information and we panic? We absolutely panic. Kids these days are wearing these funny jeans and it's going to lead to debauchery. Well, we find out ten years later that it didn't lead to debauchery and the fad came and went and we just move on. I mean, how many things, how many end times predictions have we had that have led to that? How many sort of fear-mongering political things that have come down that, you know, at the end of the day, nothing really came of it? Match the alarm with reality. And then number four, he says, learn to have nuance and avoid thinking. There is always only one right position on an issue. And this is so true in, in political circles, too. I've talked to different politicians that in political circles who have been advocating for certain things, they have to, and that's how democracy works, uh, they have to give certain compromises. And so let's say that they are, are taking a Christian stand and not being for abortion. And if they come down right on not abortion, they're going to lose the whole thing. And so they end up having to come down on something like only abortion for the first four weeks. And we might say that's a compromise. And they may say, you know what? That's, that's, that's headway. That's headway because if we wouldn't have stopped it at four weeks, it would have been a lot further down the road. Sometimes we need to understand the environments in which Christians work in and give people the benefit of the doubt and realize some of the sensitive situations that we're dealing with and how best to approach it. These, I think, are some very good Holy Spirit living principles of what it means to walk in love. To me, this sounds like what a mature Christian starts to look like as they get older in their faith. To me, this is, looks like someone who's been walking in the Holy Spirit. To me, this looks like a wise person. The most important thing we can show people, even when we do disagree with them, is that despite it all, we love them. That's what Corinthians says when Paul says, you can have all knowledge, you can have the best preaching, you can have the best tithing and giving, you can have the best music, you can have the best Bible reading and the best praying, the best programs and policies and procedures and everything, but if you have not love, it amounts to nothing. 
And love is what the Holy Spirit is guiding us in. Harmony that God delights in is not the polished performance of the choir, but how we treat one another as we got to the performance. What happened behind the scenes? Was there harmony there or not? A spirit-filled church is not necessarily a hyper-church, a talented church, a rich church, a popular church, a church uh, that has all the, the, the latest things, or a church that holds on to all of its old traditions. A Holy Spirit church is a church that loves the enemy. It loves the forgotten. It loves the stranger. It loves the seemingly unimportant. And that leads us to our last and final thing for this morning of the end goal of what the Holy Spirit's leading us to. And that is the Holy Spirit counsels us to the end goal of producing unity among believers. That's Jesus' last prayer for the church. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Just as we talked last week, this is what God's character reflects. But what we need to realize about this is God's character reflects unity in diversity. Unity does not mean uniformity. It does not mean we all agree. It does not mean we all get along. It does not mean that we're one just big pot of gruel. That's what gruel looks like. No one wants to eat that stuff. It's nasty. It's terrible. Yeah, it, it, there's unity in there. Sort of. There's uniformity in there. It's all big one mess of garbage. All put together. It's kind of disgusting. And churches that are like that are kind of gross too. In fact, the real extreme churches that are like that are called cults. Where everybody just sort of robotically thinks and acts the same. It's a, a false unity. The kind of unity the Holy Spirit is calling us to is the unity of stew. Now that's something you want to eat. Look at that. Look at the comparison between those two. If you had a menu in a restaurant and you were given those two options, which one would you pick? It's the stew. See, in the stew, you can distinguish the carrots from the beef. You can tell what the potatoes are and what the parsley is. No one wants a stew that's all carrot. No one wants a stew that's all potato. But all of these elements work together so that when you taste it, the combination of the flavors of all the diverse elements have one strong, distinct taste. And it's that beautiful, unified taste of a good stew. That's more of the analogy of the church. It's what Paul says when he talks about the church being a body. We're not all one big eyeball, one big nose, one big hand. We're diverse. We're different. We have different roles, different functions. We see things differently. And yet, we learn to work together. Even in our disagreements. When the church looks like gruel, no one wants to eat what we're offering. But when the church looks like a stew, people want a taste of what's going on there. And that taste is the taste of the Holy Spirit. John 17, Jesus prays that his people be one. And he sent his Holy Spirit to make 
sure that that happens. This explicitly means that we should not all think alike. We should not all act alike. In fact, it's the very thing that sharpens us with each other. We are not competitors. We are companions on the same team. The Holy Spirit is coaching us into Christ-like maturity. And that's why we are called to be humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The one thing that has been the greatest mar on the church in regards to its testimony to the world. And in fact, this is one of the things that my unificationist friends bring up with me as well, which is why they call themselves unificationists, is why are there so many different versions of you guys? And I have to constantly say is because we don't do very well at not getting along. And so we just keep splinting, separating, going our separate ways, on and on and on and on throughout history to the point where we have countless numbers of versions of Christianity. Whereas Jesus said, make, or Paul said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. A rich church is a church that actually is theologically rich in its diversity, in its thinking, and its approaches to life. Not one where everybody thinks and acts the same way. It's to this end that the Holy Spirit keeps us going back to Scripture and prayer. If our time in Scripture and prayer is not growing us to this end, love and unity... If our time in scripture and prayer is simply making us more opinionated, more judgmental, more puffed up, more narrow-minded, more accusatory, then we're better off reading Archie comics than spending time in the Bible. Because the Bible is not, if you read it, it automatically helps you. It's not. It's a very dangerous book. If you read it in, with the, in surrendering to the Spirit, it will help you grow. If you don't, this book will make you a worse person. And so, if you are not living in the spirit and surrender, please read the Archie comics and not the Bible. The Holy Spirit is a coach who counsels us through scripture. He counsels us through prayer. He produces Christ-like fruit in us. And he produces unity among believers. That's what the Holy Spirit is continuing to do in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you sent us through your son Jesus. We pray that we will be a church, that we will be a people that will walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we will hear from you because we are a people who are rooted to your words that you've given us in Scripture, and that we are hearing them and we are living them out in the goal of love and unity. May we, Lord, show the world what it means to love and to be one. In Jesus' name, amen.